Hello, and welcome to the Stop Devaluation Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the Stop Devaluation Movement, Melody Hilton. The heart of this movement is to see the value in all of humanity and live courageous lifestyles of using our power for good instead of harm. We can affect change by choosing validation over judgment, and I hope you'll take your place and make a positive impact in this world. What storyline are you going to be a part of? Will Ford's powerful and poignant life story will astound you. Will has traveled the nation for 20 years with a kettle pot owned by his ancestors. This treasure was passed down to him along with the horror stories of slavery and his family's suffering at the hands of their slave owners. Yet, this amazing man focuses on racial reconciliation and challenges all of humanity to bring healing to the divides for the sake of future generations. Get out your tissues. This is a story you must hear. Thank you so much for joining the Stop Devaluation Movement My Story. Today, I am so honored and I'm so humbled to welcome Will Ford to share his poignant and powerful story. Will, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you so much, Melody. It's, it's an honor to be with you today. You have traveled the nation with a heart to see healing come to the racial divides. But today, I desire to hear your story and to share not just your story, but your family history and how that plays into all that you are and all that you do. Well, thank you so much, Melody. You know, um, I, I've been traveling the country for honestly about 20 years now with a 200-year-old kettle pot from my family. <laughs> you know, so people will say, why would you carry this big hunk of tin around with you? Uh, Colonial Williamsburg puts it at 1834, between 1834 and 1838. So it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty old. And uh, it was passed down from generation to generation in my family. And the reason why is because it was used by the Christian slaves in my family. They used it for cooking, but they secretly used it for another reason. Here's the deal. They, they used it the way they did. Uh, uh, for cooking, for, for washing clothes, but secretly they use it for prayer. Ah. They use it for prayer because um, uh, they were owned by a slave master who would beat them for any reason. And prayer was one of them. So oh. the irony of slavery during that time period, of course, they used uh, Christianity. Some people use Christianity as a way to keep people in bondage. So they would literally tell their slaves, you know, we want you to be Christians, and uh, but you better be obedient to your master if you want to go to heaven. Now, uh, it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. Mm -hmm. The irony is that they wanted them to be Christians, but they didn't want them to pray either because they felt like if they prayed, it would foster hope. And if they got hopeful, they felt like they would try to run away. So they would literally uh, beat them if they heard them praying. Give an example how cruel slavery was on this plantation. Uh, we had a story passed down about a great uncle of ours who uh, uh, went fishing and uh, forgot to ask before he went fishing. When he came back to the plantation, 
the slave master and the overseer decided to make an example out of him. So they strapped him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. And uh, as the story is told, they took a, a, a shredded leather uh, whip and, um, with, and had box and nails and glass attached to it, something like the cat of nine tails. And they beat this slave forefather of ours until all the flesh was put off of his back. Oh my! And uh, and and the family, in effort to save his life, they they uh, they put um, lard or, or grease on the on the sheet to uh, to wrap it around his body. They put grease on the sheet so it wouldn't right the, the cotton on the sheet wouldn't stick to the exposed skin on his back. But uh, in spite of their efforts and because of the cruelty, he bled to death and died. So that's how cruel slavery was on this plantation there in Lake Providence, Louisiana. But the interesting thing is that these folks, in spite of the danger of being caught praying, they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they would sneak into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen, but to make sure it wasn't heard, they used that cast iron pot. So what they would do is they'd go into a barn with that pot in the middle of the, of the, of the cabin and they would turn it upside down. And they would prop it up with a rock so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would prostrate themselves on the ground, lay flat on the ground, and then put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that, so that the kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night in that barn. And the story they passed down with that pot is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. <laughs> So one one day, freedom comes. There's this young teenage girl who decided to keep that pot and that story in our family. Why would she do that? Well, she's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. And she's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps that pot and that story in our family. And she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed the pot down to Nora Lockett. Nora Lockett passed it on to her son, William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. Wow. And so it's been passed down in our family all this time. And um, and I've been taking it around the country to represent something significant in prayer, using it to talk about racial reconciliation, using it to bring healing, and uh, using it as an object lesson as well for uh, for forgiveness, doing foot washing. I actually done foot washing. Wow. With, this, with that kettle pot with uh, the chief of police for the Dallas Police Department when five of the officers were, were shot and killed. Oh. And uh, I had done a foot washing with uh, the King family, Bernice King uh, and her cousin, Alveda King. So been using it for, for, for many years to represent the God who answers prayer and also the one who wants to be involved in healing yes. uh, the division between us. You traveled with uh, a white man in in mm-hmm. hopes of bringing racial reconciliation. Tell me about that part of the story. Well, yeah. So the way that story happened, we we met because we were led by dreams, <laughs> and not not necessarily dreams in terms of aspirations, but little dreams. I had a dream where God actually began to deal with my heart about the unforgiveness issues that I had with the white community. And so 2003, 2004, I had a dream about the dreamer, Dr. King. <laughs> I was actually going to do a, a reconciliation event in his, uh, in the place where the civil rights movement first started there in Montgomery, Alabama. 
And um, but the night before we go there, I had a dream about the dream of Dr. King. In this mm-hmm. dream, Dr. King comes out of this huge uh, house, uh, and he has this big white duffel bag on his shoulders. <laughs> and in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. Then he throws the bag down violently and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag could make a nice souvenir. <laughs> and so uh, I go to try to pick up the bag. I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College. He went to Morehouse College. The bag could make a nice souvenir. But before I could touch the baggage in my story, I mean, in my, in my dream, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. Hmm. And he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial divide in America. And then I wake up from the dream, I wake up from the dream in tears. And uh, I realized my pillow was soaked in tears. I've been sleeping and dreaming and crying the whole night. Uh, and I didn't, didn't even realize it. I shared the dream with my friend. And we began to, you know, meditate on this whole dream. And then it hit me. That white bag represented my white baggage. And the black candles represented, I, as an African-American, as, I, as I've been holding on to my own white baggage. In other words, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. Because mm. um, when I was 13 years old, myself and three other friends, we were coming out of a, a convenience store in a carload full of white guys who didn't know us, chased us over an hour and a half, oh. called us the N-word, say they were going to shoot and kill us. <laughs> they probably were just joyriding, but, but honestly, you know, 12, 13-year-olds, we, we, were, we were terrified. Yes. Uh, I know what it's like in, at 19 years old to be falsely accused of shoplifting, and when the police officer, officer couldn't find anything on me, he tried to say ugly things to me to provoke me into a fight. I know what it's like in my 30s, get my in the same police officer for the first three months would pull me over every week just for driving while black. I know what that's like, but what I'd done, uh, I'd, I'd uh, put those three stories, those three uh, uh, thoughts, feelings, and emotions from from the whole thing. I saw it, I saw white people and police officers through the filter of those experiences. Mm. And so I, I knew what God was saying to me, saying, get rid of your bitterness, get rid of any unforgiveness, get rid of any resentment, get rid of your baggage, get rid of your white baggage. Mm-hmm. So we can get into a new vehicle that can bring justice for everybody. Honestly, the question right now for everybody is this: What color is your baggage? <laughs> mm. Get get rid of it, because honestly, we we all need each other right now. Yes. So, so after I had that dream, um, a friend asked me to share that story at the Lincoln Memorial, and we had this uh, gathering there on MLK Celebration Day, and it just so happened that there was a friend of mine, a new friend, but I didn't know him at the time. He had a dream about the person of the event. And in the dream, they were in a prayer meeting together. And he was struck by it because he actually heard that knew, heard and knew the name of the person. And so he went to Google and to Google up the name of the person, and up pops the face of the man that he saw in his dream. And he's holding a prayer meeting, doing exactly what he saw in his dream. So he freaks out. And so he decides to come to that, to that meeting with us. And, um, and we met. We became good friends. We've been friends for 16 years. Well, fast forward, that friend of mine, his name is Matt Lockett, mm. about six years ago, he found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. And we thought, wow, what a cool coincidence. You know, here I have this kettle pot where the slaves pray underneath the freedom, and you have this house where General Lee fought his last battle. We thought, what a cool coincidence. But then, Melanie, we 
looked it up, but we stumbled on more research, and we learned that it was Matt Lockett's family who owned my family where that kettle pot came from. So his family that was so abusive mm -hmm. to their slaves was his ancestry. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's one part of his ancestry. And, but the thing is we met each other at the Lincoln Memorial, both led by dreams to the place where Dr. King said, and I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. Oh my gosh. I have goosebumps right now. Yeah, and so, I mean, the story is so powerful. That's like the tip of the iceberg of the story because a year and a half later, we found out that he actually had people in his family who fought for freedom. But the interesting thing is it took a year and a half before we ever found that out. Mm. Uh, I feel like that year and a half was important because we had two years of friendship. I mean, very good friendship. And then all of a sudden, he finds out this part of the story. And uh, I mean, we talk about it more in detail in our book, but what happens is, we had to deal with the whole thing of his family, all of my family. So uh, at first we're in this, oh my God, this is this crazy, serendipitous moment, this uncoincidental coincidence. Oh my God, you know, it's crazy. But then we got to a place where we were like, hold up. You know, when all the excitement wore off, yeah. it was like, hold up, your family actually owned my family. What about those ugly stories that we had about some slaves being beat to death? Yeah. And so now... I have a face connected to those stories, uh-huh. and it's the face of somebody that I, I love. I love him, Kim, his kids, you know, and I'm trying to forget how my friend was ever my family's enemy. And uh, and so I had some more work to do. I had to get some, honestly, I had to get rid of some, some baggage I didn't even know was there. Uh-huh. And uh, personally, we talked through it a little bit, but mostly it was just one-on-one. Uh, just me just sorting, sorting it out. And then he had to deal with that too. He said he was maybe been one of those people who were dismissive and uh, when it came to the pain of uh, minority communities. He said, but now he realized that his family was the family that's part of that story that he'd been hearing for 10 years. Yeah, it's connected to the face and the person that he knew and loved. And so he's like, man, I've been so dismissive about the pain in the minority communities. And so now it's brought more understanding. So it really, Brought us closer together, but I'm glad we had those ten years of friendship beforehand. Because yes. honestly, I don't know, if, I, if we didn't have those ten years of friendship beforehand, I don't know if we could have. Uh, mm-hmm. it, we, we, could, we could have got through it, but it definitely made it, the story more you know, just just richer. But here's what happened: after a year and a half, he stumbled. Matt Lockett stumbled across a book of uh, people who uh, traveled and who were abolitionists against against slavery. They were called the circuit riders. Mm-hmm. And uh, everywhere the circuit riders went, they would carry a manumission form with them. So you have these, some, these other preachers who, you know, preached this uh, thing about slaves being the masters and really just totally just uh, abusing scripture. But you have these other people who taught and preached freedom. That's what the circuit riders did. Mm-hmm. And so if someone who was a slave owner was converted in their, in their gatherings, they would slide the manumission form over to them, and when they would uh, get the manumission form, they would say, listen, it was for freedom. You were set free. Now it's your turn to set your slaves free. Wow. We, we know that's exactly what happened because everywhere the free slaves, everywhere the circuit riders went and they spoke in their gatherings, the free slave population grew exponentially. Wow. So, yeah, he had slave owners in his family. He also had freedom fighters in his family. 
And uh, I think that's kind of where we are in all of our families. You know, you get these mm-hmm. dominating themes of storylines in all of our families of, you know, where you see uh, uh, things play out where there's addiction after addiction after addiction passed down in the family or you have, you have other things happen. Of being passed down in the family from uh, not just wealth, but in prosperity, but also uh, integrity, philanthropy, and other things. And there's these different storylines we can connect to uh, in our families and also in a nation. You know, and I think that that's what's happening right now. A, a question is being asked to America right now, and the question is this what storyline are we going to be a part of? The healing or the hurt, the blessing or the curse, what storyline are we going to be a part of right now? We've uh, we we travel the country and we we've been sharing our story together, and it's it's been a powerful powerful just to see the the healing that's being released in the, in the venues that we go into. Of course, you know we we go into uh, some churches, but then we we've, we've spoken on college campuses. We we've spoken for uh, the National Urban League and other uh, civic venues like that, and. Uh, you know, the story is the same and, you know, the reaction is honestly is the same regardless of the audience. People uh, come come up to us in tears. We see uh, people engaging and talking to, talking to each other who wouldn't normally talk to each other. And uh, we've seen some amazing things happen as a result of the of our, of our, of our sharing our story together. Will, when you look across the things that are happening in our nation and so many are hurting and it seems like the divides are widening. What would be some of the solutions that you have to be able to cross those divides? Uh, I'm a white person. What would you mm-hmm. say to me, Melody, if you would do these things, it would release a message to the black community that you truly do care, that you want healing. What are some of those things mm-hmm. that I can do or what the white community can do if they truly have a heart to see restoration? Yeah. Well, I guess it, it, it has to do all with perspective and be willing to see, uh, see life through the lens of someone else. Okay. I mean, for, for, for example, anybody who's you know, part of the minority community in, in America, not just African-American, of course, Asian, uh, Hispanic, yes. Uh, Native American, we have learned how to exist in a sense in, in, in two different worlds. We, if you want to make it in, in this nation, you have to know uh, how to uh, uh, communicate with uh, with the dominant culture. You have to uh, go to the right schools. You need to uh, uh, educate yourself, communicate, and learn how to um, uh, not just learn but embrace history and uh and connect with people so we've we've learned that but for the dominant culture you don't have to do that that's a choice for you to move outside of your Mm -hmm. dominant culture to do anything Mm -hmm. and so that's one of the most powerful things you could do is go to lunch with somebody that doesn't look like you Mm -hmm. have conversations with people that don't look like you Mm -hmm. and be willing to listen to their stories, yeah. that that would be really, really key, and that's 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 one of the things that that uh, we're bringing greater healing is us stepping out of our comfort zones, all of us, mm-hmm. and connecting with other connecting with others. You know, Facebook and all these social media platforms, and uh, they they can keep you in that same <laughs> silo, uh, where it's just the people that you like 
the people that you admire. Every time you click a like, every time you uh, uh, hit a heart, uh, they keep sending that kind of content to you over and over again. And it keeps you in your own mm-hmm. bubble. People mm-hmm. talk about the bubble, but it's, that bubble is true. And so um, even stepping outside of those areas a few times and, and friending people on Facebook who don't necessarily agree with you, who yes. don't necessarily look like you, so you yes. can so you can learn more. And, uh, and so we can, uh, you know, accept and appreciate uh, some of the differences. Even we may not agree with each other in terms of ideology, we can definitely agree with each other regard to uh, character, integrity, even the even the, the honesty and the uh, and the, the courage that it takes to be honest about uh, what's going on in the inside of us and what's going on with this in terms of what's going to happen in the heart. So, long story short, step out of your comfort zone and get in conversations, pursue uh, other friends and outside of your circle. I think that w- that will be that will be key. Uh, this this is going to take place through conversations. There's, yes. there's no way around it. Just uh, being willing to uh, have a, have the tough conversations and to listen to each other. We are critical of what we do not understand. And if we're not willing to take the time to understand, we will keep ourselves locked in mindsets that are actually not just destructive to reconciliation, but it hinders our own process to grow, advance, and personally become the best version of ourselves because we are better together than we are separate. And the more we isolate ourselves from anyone who thinks or believes differently than us, we're cutting off our opportunity to grow. It does. You know, I remember a cultural anthropologist years ago doing this, doing a talk. And uh, he said that China, was one of the greatest civilizations ever in terms of uh, just the rapid growth, expansion, uh, the uh, the innovation, the creativity that was coming out of it was amazing. He said, but they all got shut down when they built the Great Wall of China. Mm. <laughs> he said that Great Wall shut them off, and when they were shut off, and they just trying to protect themselves, actually shut them down from all the creativity and the innovation that was actually happening before they built the wall. And so, um, that's it's, powerful. It's interesting. Wow. Yeah. We got to tear I, I, down I, I, some I, walls, right? We have to tear down the wall. We think we're protecting ourselves. No. We think we're protecting ourselves. But actually we, we, we start to diminish once we erect walls. That is so good. And when I can love mm-hmm. others and celebrate others, a whole world opens up for me. Yeah, that's so true. I'm, same thing for me. I, I mean, uh, of course, I, I, I do a lot with healing the racial divide between um, blacks and whites, but also I, I work in other areas. I've been working a lot with uh, and, and trying to uh, do away with anti-Semitism. It's mm-hmm. really on the rise and uh, learning a lot from the Jewish community. Also, uh, with the coronavirus, the interesting thing is that this, uh, the uh, Asian community has been under attack in a significant way. People are blaming them literally for bringing in the coronavirus as if their ethnicity is a virus. (laughs) And uh, I've been having some interesting conversations with them to uh, want to bring healing, but also just to get understanding. So I've been having these amazing new relationships over the past four months with with Asian leaders. And I've learned things I've never learned before. It's so funny, Melody. I I feel like that 
that, that, that white person who comes to the black person and they're like, you know, I'm just here to learn. I may say some things that are awkward. You know, please forgive me in advance. And will you please just tell me your story. Like I'm having those kind of conversations initiating those conversations like that with these folks, mm-hmm. um, with the Asian community, the same way I've had white folks uh, ask me to tell my stories. And I've learned so much. Like I had no idea that uh, many Chinese first came to America to pick cotton shortly after slavery. Mm-hmm. And they picked that cotton down in, in Mississippi and uh, the, the, be part of the South. I thought they all came in through San Francisco or something like that, but that's not the case. Um, I didn't know about the Chinese Exclusionary Act which was like uh, the, the, the only um, immigration law that was put in place against an ethnicity. In other mm-hmm. words, it wasn't, if you came from China, only one male could come over. It was if you were Chinese. So if you were a person who was Chinese in Australia or a person who was Chinese in, Ger- in Germany or wherever, if you came to America, <laughs> only, the, only the man could come over. His wife and his family could not come over mm-hmm. to the nation. That law stayed uh, some form of it stayed intact for over 135 years. So uh, what I'm saying is this this is an interesting time where we can learn mm-hmm. all these powerful stories, these American stories of people who have contributed to, uh, to, to, you know, to our society. We don't learn a lot of this stuff in our history books. I didn't learn about any of this stuff, especially even with what happened with uh, the Asian community. I, I learned none of that even while I was in college. I just been learning this in the past uh, five months, spending time with the uh, with, with these with these leaders, but it's, it's it's enriched my life. It's enriched theirs, and guess what? Our children are going to be the benefactors of it yes. because they're going to they're going to move the chain forward for healing for understanding. They're going to take it to a whole other level. And that's what it's all about. It's about yes. the next generation. Yes. What kind of country are we willing to give yes. uh, our sons and our daughters? Mm-hmm. And so we need to connect to the right storyline right now. That's going to bring healing. That's going to uh, bring uh, greater uh, awakening. And also uh, just revive the American spirit. That's right. We're making these huge steps forward for the sake of generations to come. And so I love how you said we have to connect to the right storyline. And for me and the stopped evaluation movement, it is to see value in all of humanity to confront prejudice, which is every form of prejudgment, to confront our biases, to confront the stereotypes where we judge the majority by the minority. And when we begin to confront these things, we'll start developing a different perspective, and we start teaching that to our children and to our grandchildren, and we are developing a future for our nation and the nations of the earth that is going to be healthier, more inclusive. And I love the word inclusive because it's not just Mm -hmm. about diversity. It's about opening our hearts and letting others in. That's true inclusivity. That is our desire. And you are a, a man who has chosen to do this. Your family, you look at your family history, and I know your heart broke for their suffering. My, As you tell the stories, my heart's breaking. And even the yeah. things you've experienced that were just so unjust. But you have made a, a choice to rewrite the narrative. And by doing that, your children and a generation of children can be healed. Thank you so much for joining my story. But before we close, is there anything you just want to say that I don't want 
to quit this interview mm-hmm. without communicating this one thing. Really appreciate you bringing me on. Love what you're doing. Love what you're doing in the marketplace. So anybody wants to know more about the story, my, myself and my friend, we water both together called The Dream King. How the dream of Martin Luther King's being fulfilled to heal racism in America. Good. Just go to dreamstreamcompany.com and uh, you can see all of our information there. That's awesome. Yes, please get that book. It'll impact your life. Thank you so much, Will. Oh, bless you, Mary. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for listening and encourage you to become a part of the Stop Devaluation Movement. Be sure to like and follow hashtag Stop Devaluation on social media, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and visit StopDevaluation.com for more information and free resources. You can help spread the movement by sharing with others, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and most of all, by living a courageous lifestyle of using your power for good. Go out and value someone today. Your life matters and you can make the world a better place. One word, one choice, one action of validation at a time.